hppodcraft.com. I think that both of us simultaneously cried out in mixed awe, wonder, terror, and disbelief in our own senses as we finally cleared the pass and saw what lay beyond. The effect of the monstrous sight was indescribable, for some fiendish violation of known natural law seemed certain at the outset. Here, on a hellishly ancient tableland fully 20,000 feet high, there stretched nearly to vision's limit a tangle of orderly stone which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but a conscious and artificial cause. That was the first paragraph of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness. I am Chris Lackey. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Ian Cobot. And we are on the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Here at HPPodcraft.com. Glad to have you back, Ian. And I'm um, glad to be back. This is our fourth yeah. episode of At the Mountains of Madness. I'll also mention that it is our 80th episode. and 80? 80 episodes of this show, if you don't count the readings, right, yeah. so far. And the, the really great thing about this episode is that uh, we're here in Santa Monica and Chris is actually in the room with me right now. Oh my God, I am. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't You're realize You're surprised that. by that? Yeah. <laughs> Things seemed a little different, but I yeah. couldn't quite put my finger on it. Right. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Well, okay. you know, we, uh, the first half, I guess probably almost up to the first 40 episodes we did do in your apartment about a block away from here. Yep. And then Chris moved to England, and, and we've been doing it over Skype, but Chris is uh, on his way through because your brother's getting married, right? He is. My brother, Pat, he's going to get married this weekend. So, uh, we, you know, he skipped through town here in Los Angeles, and we decided, let's sit down together and do this again. Uh, yeah. What, what does it feel like to look at me again? It's creepy. <laughs> I'm a little uncomfortable. Oh, well, I, I, well, the thing is, you. I was gonna. I thought you were gonna say like it feels good or something. No, nice. no. Well, I mean, you. When we first did our recording, you wore clothes. <laughs> and now that you uh, uh-huh. gotten into this habit of yours, I think it is well, just a little un- uncomfortable for me. Yeah, sure. obviously very comfortable for you. It's, I love it. Um, By the way, Ian, what are you wearing? What am I wearing? <laughs> I'm not telling you that. All right. All right. <laughs> I just pictured him in a tutu and a Viking helmet. Oh, for me it was formal wear. <laughs> How did you know? So what's uh, what's going on in the story thus far? There's an expedition that's gone down to the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are just doing some geological s- studies, and they stumble upon some fossil evidence that shows that there was a complex life form that existed hundreds of millions of years ago before any big complex life forms should, should exist. So they changed their study over to this different area, and they'd split up the group. The guy that's the head of the expedition, Dreyer, stayed back. It's not Dreyer, it's Dyer. <laughs> so I can't okay. get Fred Dreyer out of my head. Also, it's Antarctic. Didn't you say Arctic? I think you said Arctic. Did I, did I say Arctic? Yeah, it's the other side of the planet. Antarctic. Yeah. Sorry, the yeah. Antarctic. Is it different if you say Arctic? Yeah. Arctic yeah. is the north. Antarctic oh, really? is the south. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah I knew that the whole time. <laughs> so uh, they split up this guy, Lake, who's a biologist, they find some bodies of these weird creatures and they start to dissect them and then all of a sudden they lose communications. Then Dyer goes up to find out what happened and they're all killed. One dude's missing, Gendy, and... The Get bo- me. And, Get me. And one of the dogs. And uh-huh. they, Dyer and this, his sidekick, Danforth, have decided to go up into those mountains 
to see you know what the right. heck's going on up they there. want to confirm what they've been hearing from reports from lake now that all those people were missing and when they showed up at the camp those guys have been massacred so yeah you're right dyer and danforth they go up over and and that opening quote that we heard is them flying up over those mountains of madness yep. that had been reported to them over the telegraph and uh just want to mention real quick that again we have joe freya as our reader we have uh reber clark doing our music and uh, we're grateful to have them once again you know i, I do want to bring up something about that opening quote lovecraft was a, he read a bunch of freud stuff and that whole that line that he has about a tangle of orderly stone which only the desperation of mental self-defense could possibly attribute to any but a conscious and artificial cause. Sure. Lovecraft wrote in one of his letters, because this is after reading some Freud, he says, Dr. Sigmund Freud of Vienna, whose system of psychoanalysis I have begun to investigate, would probably prove the end of idealistic thought. I think he has his limitations, and I am inclined to accept the modifications of Adler, who, in placing the ego above the eros, makes a scientific return to the position which Nietzsche assumed for wholly philosophical reasons. Okay. Which ties in, I mean, it's Lovecraft's sort of world view of when people see things they can't deal with, they sort of retreat into this insanity. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. people see something they can't deal with and they just go nuts or they, they edit out their memory, which is based in some, some uh, scientific principles. And, of course, Lovecraft was reading Freud and taking that stuff and putting it into his stories. But it seems really unique where most... Most times in horror stories or fiction, people yeah. just scream or they run or, you know, that, and that's it. That's the extent of fear. But in, yeah. in here, it's a much deeper psychological trauma. It is. The desperation of mental self-defense. Yeah. Um, what a great phrase that yeah. is, you know? Because how many times in your life, and I'm, I'm sure anybody listening has seen something and they said, that didn't just happen. <laughs> It must have been something else. Right. You kind of naturally correlate to something that you, you would understand as well, wouldn't you? You have various, uh, if you believe them or not, UFO sightings, alien sightings, and they tend to correlate that it's like an owl man and things like that because they'll just say, oh, it kind of looks like an owl. You or wait, wasn't there weird. a monkey man with robot arms in India? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's the one. And uh, they, you tend to rationalize and correlate things. You know, you'll put together in your mind exactly what you do understand and anything, you know. Well, I remember one time I was on Hollywood Boulevard with Chris about 15 years ago and we were driving and there was a guy just wearing a cap. Oh, yeah. And shoes. Red shoes. Red cap, red shoes, and nothing else. Yeah. <laughs> and immediately I thought, well, a hurt, you know, something happened where his clothes just fell off or, you know, I tried to, like, figure out. In his, I was, my self-defense, my mental self-defense kicked in. He didn't do that intentionally. There's no reason he could have possibly done that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. happened. Yeah, because yeah, you're thinking, was... I wouldn't do that. Yeah, otherwise I'm left with the frightening notion that he woke up that day and said, cap and shoes, that's it. <laughs> uh, all right, so once they cross over these mountains, Danforth and Dyer, they see what lies below. They have to rule out any natural erosion. I mean, this is clearly, this is undoubtedly a city of some kind yeah. that they see, right? It predates everything known to modern science and geology. And it's sort of the realization of the earlier polar mirage, right? They, yeah. they had seen this polar mirage where they thought this is the, you know, they, they saw something and they thought that can only be a mirage because this can't possibly exist right. over those mountains. And, but, but it was. It was real. But it was. They're seeing it. There are cones. There's cave mouths. There's cubes. Giant buildings. Now, it's eroded, but it's obvious that this is once a city. Sort of like if you see the ruins of Pompeii or something like mm -hmm. that where... Uh, yes, it, it's, it's sort of shaved down by wind and time, but it's clearly, it, it was a structure of some kind. Um, 
And and there's there's some bridges or something like that, right? There's yeah. like bridges that cross over, and they could tell from the shape of things that there was once some sort of great river running through the whole thing millions of millions of years ago. And uh, the the really uh, once again we get into scale with this story that they're flying around looking at this city, and it goes on and on and on and on and on, right? Yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just huge. But I mean, and also at this point too, he again brings up the the plateau of Lang and mm-hmm. compares it to that. And uh, talks about hyperborean legends? Hyperborea, yeah. Isn't that a Conan thing? It is Conan, but I don't know what exactly where it came from. Who? Oh, nope, I knew. Clark Ashton Smith. Yeah, it was in it was in my notes here. Hyperborea is uh, Greek myth. Uh, So, well, in that context, but I mean, in the context of um, the pulps. I would presume that he's referring to what uh, Robert E. Howard would have been referring to, possibly. Right. Well, specifically, Clark Ashton Smith was the one that came up oh, with it, or used it first, go. as the northern, con- uh, northern continent. So kind of mm-hmm. bef- Europe before it was Europe. Some of those first Conan stories are referred to as the Hyperborean Age. And it just means beyond the Boreas. <laughs> <laughs> You're like a code breaker. <laughs> Well, there are uh, there are open spaces as they fly over the city that have that same star shape that was used on the soapstone mm-hmm. and in the graves for the elder things. And they do finally, at some point in the plane, they reach the end of it, mm-hmm. the end of the city. So they okay, it is finite. And then they turn back and they decide we got to find a place to land so we can explore this on foot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so they do. They find like a nice stretch where they say this is a safe place. It's pretty. It's pretty flat. We can land here with the plane. And more importantly, take off later. Exactly. This is somewhere we can take off from. And what was tripping me out when I was reading that part of the story is when they land the plane, they get out of the plane and they take off some clothes because while they were flying, uh-huh. open air in that plane, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't even believe that. <laughs> no. Because you're already in the most freezing part of the planet, and on top of that, you're flying in a plane at really fast speeds. At high, super yeah. high altitudes. Yeah. And no, yeah, altitudes that would have... Um, yeah, cause irreparable damage, probably. Yeah. But I mean, that was one thing I was thinking about the story. And people, when they climb Everest, they need oxygen, and this is yeah. higher yeah. than Everest. So, how is it possible? Well, I mean, there, there are, there's sort of an explanation later on in the story of there's mist coming up. Uh huh. Oh, so, so I it's think oxygenated maybe in some way you know I, I I'm assuming or maybe Lovecraft just didn't really understand that you need oxygen at that. At that also, point. very early on in the story, we told the Pabodi which is how I'm choosing to pronounce it now. <laughs> the Pabodi um, um, did something with the fuel. He made it so it wouldn't freeze. Essentially, he invented right. an antifreeze, didn't he? Also, lots of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cocaine! That's my subtext. They, do, they, they get out of the plane once they land, and they decide we're going to start doing some exploring on foot. They gather up their supplies. They've got paper and pens and flashlights and extra batteries. Now... Normally, if you were going to track your path through something, he says you'd take your geologist hammer and chisel and you'd kind of carve into the wall. But they have extra paper, so they decide they're going to use that. Yeah. Aside from doing their sketches and notes, they're going to use a little bit of paper for trailblazing. Yeah. I found that odd. It's like yeah. breadcrumbs. Yeah, essentially, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's Hansel and Gretel, isn't it? Those, those it crumbs is. are going to disappear. <laughs> what are you going to, where do you put the paper? I didn't understand this, and maybe I'm just dense or something. No. But what, are you tucking it into the ground? I mean, how do you keep I don't the know. paper from blowing away? Well, and it's also uh, white. Paper's generally white, and snow is white. So it would be really, I think it would be really easy to lose 
there's something here that we're missing because I'm sure that Lovecraft would have not researched the whole Antarctic expedition thing and then just gone, yeah, paper. They use paper. Yeah, I, I mean, don't there, know. They, that, that, there must have, be some precedent for that. So they 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 see this rampart. It's this giant, you know, kind of star shape, you know, series of walls, and that they. When they touch it, it's very profound. They know they're touching something that hasn't been... No human has ever touched it. Yeah, and, and no thing of any kind has touched it for, for millions, millions of years. Millions of years. It's shaped like a star. It's 300 feet tall, and there are little windows and loopholes in it. Yeah. And uh, they climb through one of the windows, but everything's all ice-choked. They can't really get through anywhere at that point. So they, they go down a ramp of some kind or something like that. They, they walk down to the city itself. Because uh-huh. the theory being that it will be less ice choked the further down they go. I think that's exactly. in correlation with the... They, they, well, they're working their way towards the river. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, one of the things, too, that they, that they talk about is that the stones are made of... Are, are huge. They're made by... They're six feet by eight feet, the surface yeah. of these things. And they don't know exactly how deep they go. But you know, whatever made these things, they either had to have some crazy... Technology to move, yeah. just, you move these stones, or or really efficient slaves of some kind. Yeah, and this is the point where I think it's the point where they regret not bringing Babodi with them, so that he could have, you know, come up with some sort of idea of how they engineered this. Yeah, it must be very frustrating when you go down there and you go, ah, I wish I knew what was at play here, because this stuff doesn't make any sense to me, and all I know is the age of rocks and what rocks are made of, you know? Yeah. Um, yes, I feel like that about this podcast sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I wish I wish uh, somebody that knew what they're talking about was here, because all I really know about is fish sticks. <laughs> you know? And even then, I don't know how they're made. I just know that you put them in the oven, and they're delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I ate a hundred of them in college, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, all right, I remember. Yeah. Do you know, I keep having these moments where I keep forgetting, okay, you're 80 shows in, and yeah. I keep forgetting to join in because I keep thinking I'm listening to the show. Really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good thing. Going, oh, God, yeah, I'm, I'm actually part of this. <laughs> right we, were, we were talking to one of our friends, Levi, yesterday, and he said, um, yeah, I listen to your show and it's pretty good, but then I keep wanting, I keep chiming in while you guys are talking, and then I remember I'm not having a conversation with you, and then I just <laughs> yeah. shut it off. So they walk down to the city itself, and they're taking photos. They're trying not to freak out because everything's blowing them away. And it says, Even the pictures illustrate only one or two phases of its infinite bizarrery, endless variety, preternatural massiveness, and utterly alien exoticism. There were geometrical forms for which a Euclid could scarcely find a name, cones of all degrees of irregularity and truncation, terraces of every sort of provocative disproportion, Shafts with odd bulbous enlargements, broken columns and curious groups, and five-pointed or five-ridged arrangements of mad grotesqueness. As we drew nearer, we could see beneath certain transparent parts of the ice sheet and detect some of the tubular stone bridges that connected the crazily sprinkled structures of various heights. Of orderly streets there seemed to be none, the only broad open swath being a mile to the left where the ancient river had doubtless flowed through the town into the mountains. It's just a thought, this, but it, we were talking about, um, you know, people rationalizing and, you know, getting, uh-huh. getting something that they know and, and relating it to that and stuff. And as they're walking around, I think when I originally designed the city for the graphic novel, one of my first thoughts was to go really alien with it. And I was going to base it on the Mandelbrot um, set, which is like a fractal, 
and uh, yeah, yeah. and it goes off, and you get it in crystals, and you can get it in uh, vegetables, I believe. And what you mean by that is like a fractal, like it repeats itself continually within, within a pattern, within a pattern, and within a pattern, it keeps going. Exactly, so it gives that sort of a, a illusion of uh, the infinite. And uh -huh. um, within a computer program, I believe it is infinite. The idea that it just keeps going and going and going. But it was very quickly that I realized while I was while we were reading these things, there's you know there are familiarities that are going around, and I think it becomes. I mean, it's a point that will come up later on in the story as to why those things are very familiar to them. Why they can look people. at this architecture and there's something almost from a uh, evolutionary standpoint. It, it makes sense to them. We're connected yeah. to this somehow. It's not yeah. completely alien. Yeah. No, no, not totally alien. Uh, not totally alien like, say, something like Relia. Now, I'll say Relia because I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but I always say Relia because it sounds like hell yeah. But um, I think that it, it, whereas when you get Relia, it, that is completely, I mean, you get uh, non-Euclidean geometry holds the whole thing up so that is completely beyond our comprehension in contrast this city is there are familiarities you're walking around and hey hang on this looks a bit like you know and he's able to say the streets and there's balconies and terraces and in fact at one point he says they find some petrified wood shutters yes with hinges. which sounded more like new england or something like that to yeah. me than uh, ancient well, to me yeah and, and to me that sounded like tuscany or or something like that you know Mm, yeah, or Home Depot, you know, I'm going to go to the shutters later today. <laughs> or to us, it would be Ikea, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ancient Ikea. Ikea sounds oh, kind of Lovecraftian when you think about it. And it will explain why the city's abandoned now, because... Because <laughs> everything fell apart yeah. very easily. Oh. They had bits missing, and every time you moved the furniture, it fell apart. Yeah. <laughs> they lost the knowledge of uh, where the uh, Allen wrenches were over time. <laughs> <laughs> they couldn't. They couldn't put things together anymore. Which is why well, you have that star shape on everything. <laughs> <laughs> they get to the town. I like this. It says Danforth began making some offensively irrelevant speculations about the horror at the camp. He insisted he saw faint traces of ground markings, which he did not like. Whilst elsewhere, he stopped to listen to a subtle imaginary sound from some undefined point of uh, muffled musical piping. He said. Yeah. And they, they, they bring that up a lot, where they talk about the wind howling and they hear this piping, kind of yeah. the wind. You know, you know when wind sometimes will pick up, it'll kind of go... But Don't do that, Chris, please. No? No, that scared me. Right. You didn't need to imitate it. It's fine to talk about it, but not in my presence. Sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember what I was talking about, so... It is... It's one of the things, and we haven't brought it up yet, but they, they do refer to that musical piping that seems to be coming... Lovecraft's got a flute thing going on. It's yeah. often yeah. Uh, there's something about woodwinds and the sound of air passing through a cylinder that that bothers him and it creeps him out. Well, I mean, he d has the piping with the Azathoth in the middle mm. of the universe. You know, the pipers. He's dancing mindlessly. You know, to the yeah. piping music. And there's there's a yeah there's a, a through line with that in Lovecraft. He he's scared of pipes, I guess. <laughs> he heard Zombie Theater. <laughs> the uh, um, clearly the language of the elder things had to do with musical notes in a way or something like that. It's something that we can't understand, and the environment sounds like that too. So the environment and the history—it's all one and the same. The language is still being spoken, whether they're alive or dead. Mm -hmm. I wish that we could get Danforth's actual dialogue because I want to know what his offensively irrelevant speculations are. <laughs> you know? I want to hear them. How could he be offended by it? That's, I mean, he must be really. Well, Danforth, uptight. I think, is nailing it. He's going, "Look, guys, here's what's really going on." <laughs> Clearly, those winged barrel things killed everybody at the camp. Yep. And we're about to see some stuff, and it's going to make us insane forever. And they keep going, oh, 
That's offensive. <laughs> this is going to be science and reasonable, and it's not going to be anything like that. He's like, no, we're going to see giant penguins. No, we are not. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Sir, you offend me with your speculation. <laughs> well, they finally find an archway six feet wide, ten feet high, and uh, it's pretty much the opening they want because it marks the end of a bridge, and they figure out through this they can gain entrance to a sort of building. Mm-hmm. And that, that gets us into chapter six. It would be cumbrous to give a detailed, consecutive account of our wanderings inside that cavernous, eon-dead honeycomb of primal masonry, that monstrous layer of elder secrets which now echoed for the first time, after uncounted epochs, to the tread of human feet. This is especially true because so much of the horrible drama and revelation came from a mere study of the omnipresent mural carvings. It would be cumbrous. It would be. Well, I mean... Got news for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's already cumbrous. Uh, But, you know, obviously you can go nuts because it's a completely alien city. So, uh, you know, just describing each building must be weird and different in some some extraordinary way. Now, this part of the story, we're getting into... I've heard a lot of complaints about how um, Lovecraft has these characters looking at these murals and they are getting all this really detailed specific information from an alien language yeah and how would they understand these things how would they get this but my counter to that is they this is after the fact uh-huh. that the story is being told they could have been looking at these and not really understanding what was going on at the time and they have photos and they have photos so they take all these things back and have looked at them and studied them and is you know pieces pieces this together or there's another possibility is that essentially um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a line where he says something along the lines of, uh, you know, to the highest artistic degree or whatever it is. Um, the Danforth uh, Dyer says that they were executed and they were, they were brilliant and they were amazing. And, and it could be that they were just incredibly clear. It could be that they, you know, yeah. especially yeah, given that he's got the groundwork here because he's actually read the Necronomicon. So, right. <laughs> yeah, because they all have, you know, it was the, it was the book they've all handed around. But it could be that he's essentially looked at these things and gone, oh, yeah, you know, oh, look, there's Cthulhu. <laughs> but also, and, you know, I, I really feel that um, you can learn a lot from the art of a culture. But, look, this, is a, this appeared before in The Nameless City where they walked down a corridor and there were hieroglyphics on the wall and right. they learned a whole story. And it didn't seem very credible to me when I read no. that story. Mm-hmm. But here he's very careful to point out there are maps, there are... Uh, one of the buildings they walk into is an educational building. Yeah, it's a university. It's a university of some kind, so it's very clearly spelled out. And, you know, you can watch a film, a silent film, and it's a series of images, and what's going on and what happened is very clear to you. And as, a, as an illustrator, Ian, you must... You must deal with that all the time. How can I tell a story in, in five images or yeah. six images? Yeah. But also you can have that, like, if you think, if you consider it in terms of ancient hieroglyphics, they were pretty straightforward. If you have that basic understanding of ancient hieroglyphics, you're able to decipher the basic concept of what you're looking at. Mm. If you look at cuneiform writing, if you look at something like Japanese writing, and, and you have essentially pictures in terms, of, uh, in terms of words. So you're looking at things like a mountain, a picture of a mountain, so you're able to understand that's basically they're talking about a mountain. And then the next one, you look at the next block, and you're looking at a man. So it's a mountain in relation to a man, and so forth. So I think that, yeah, it's far-fetched, but essentially he does go in there as someone a bit more forearmed than anybody else. And also he's not saying, and then there was President 
Chthonian, and then there was (laughs) Emperor. I mean, nobody's got dialogue or anything. There was a war, and then the war ended, and Mm -hmm. then this happened, and I can totally see that. It didn't bother me that much. No. I didn't think it was that big of a leap. So anyhow, they've entered this building. It's huge, and it's confusing to get around in due to its weirdness, despite the fact that there are very familiar classical structures there, Greek columns and that kind of thing, I imagine. It's also... Well, I did like that it's wheelchair accessible. Because <laughs> everything's ranch, right? They have no stairs. Right. Uh, so this was definitely like, a... It's all ramps. <laughs> it's all ramps, yeah. This was a very kind and well-adapted yeah. civilization. Yeah. The art is very well-developed. It's alien, but it's clearly based on some kind of principles. Uh, it's likely that there are things in the art that they aren't perceiving right. He knows enough to say, we don't have the sensitivities to react to some things I can see in this art that we should be reacting to, yeah. right? He recognizes that I don't have, there's a sense I don't have that if I did have, I would probably get more out of this. Yeah. 3D glasses. Basically. Yeah, that's exactly what he's talking about. He doesn't have 3D glasses. <laughs> right. Okay. I, I know that's a really good point. Some of the strategy of this story doesn't make a lot of sense to me. He says, uh, I don't want to reveal too much because I don't want people to go here but here's some awesome stuff that we were looking at. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like if he really wanted to discourage the Stark Weather Barrymore, you know, yeah. expedition, he would say, uh, There's nothing there. We went down there, there's nothing, it was just a bunch of diapers. Yeah, it's rubbish. There's nothing there. It it's all a, fell apart. It, there's a McDonald's. Exactly. There's a McDonald's. Yeah, it's a really bad wax museum down there. Yeah. <laughs> You know, the Hall of Presidents ends with Jimmy Carter. The last celebrity they have there is Ethel Merman. You know, it's just not, it's not good. Why is he giving so much detail? It's the worst way to discourage somebody. All I want to do is go. Yeah, I know. Yeah. I'd go on a cruise ship. Norwegian Cruise Lines, take me. Yeah, I would go. I, want, I don't care what danger there is. I just want if, to see Even it. if there are Shoggoths, I would still go. Yeah. Who yeah. doesn't want to see a Shoggoth? Yeah, I know. I'm sure it would blow my mind. It'd probably kill me, but I still, hey, yeah. what a way to go. TV's boring. Well, one thing I like is they have, they have good heating systems, you yeah. know, that they learn about. That, that, that kind of stuff cracks me up. It's like they've got, they have really good heating. <laughs> <laughs> That's a mark of civilization, though. Plumbing, plumbing is a really important part of, you know, being civilized. It is. I mean, I'd love it if he'd had the detail they had toilets indoors and... <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. Movable things are gone, right? Like things that... Sort of like a tornado's coming. It seems like some things are missing, as if they yeah. deliberately deserted the city. Yeah. Am I reading that wrong? That's no, no. They, 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 they left. They left in a There's a lot of litter. So much so that some of the shutters are closed and some aren't. Yeah. I mean, that's a real hurry. <laughs> I'd hate to be the guy on that day that was in charge of closing the shutters, because clearly he didn't get out. No. They find... A lot of ovens that are on still, 375 <laughs> yeah. degrees. They've been preheating for millions of years. It tastes nice. Yeah. Oh, man, put some garlic bread in there. Yeah. Are you kidding? <laughs> Delicious. Finally, these guys accept that these were the age-old, great old ones. Yeah. The things once rearing and dwelling in this frightful masonry in the age of dinosaurs were not indeed dinosaurs, but far worse. Mere dinosaurs were new and almost brainless objects, but the builders of this city were wise and old, and had left certain traces in rocks even then laid down well nigh a thousand million years. They were the makers and enslavers of that life, and above all doubt, the originals of the fiendish elder myths 
which things like the Nicotic Manuscripts and the Necronomicon affrightedly hint about. They were the great old ones that had filtered down from the stars when the Earth was young. The beings whose substance and alien evolution had shaped and whose powers were such as this planet had never bred. That's just such an awesome paragraph. It really is. And you know, the the word picture of they had filtered down from the stars I've always been impressed by. That means there were some other nasty things that didn't get through or something, (laughs) you know? I just, the way I picture it, it feels like it's almost like snow where they, you know, have to come through the atmosphere and it doesn't come through in a big, in a big wave. It's just kind of, yeah, sort of a dusting of these yeah. creatures. Well, they just flew through space. They were going to hit any planet they could get to. This <laughs> is the, we got these ones, but there are other worse things that we don't even know about. Uh, it's interesting because the they start. I mean, he refers to them as as old as the old ones, mm. and from h- here on to the rest of the story, they're the old ones. They're not called the elder things anymore. Well, yeah. Dan, uh, Lake was the one who uh, named them the elder things, referred to them the elder things, and I think it's literally just after that when it, when. Dyer's narration picks up, and he basically he makes reference to that. Uh, that essentially mm-hmm. it begins to change to old things or older things, or and then it becomes old ones, and then it stays that yeah. way for the rest of the story. Well, after they have this revelation, they need to stop for a moment and recuperate. They do this a couple times during their journey through here, documenting things, and uh, I just wonder how that goes. You know, the, your mind gets blown. Do you take a nap? <laughs> <laughs> I think solitaire. Play some solitaire. Play solitaire. Yeah. Play Minesweeper. Aren't they racing against the lights on this as well? Well, you're right. They are. It says, were it not the support of those flashlights, soon to be made public, you know, and and the batteries are running out, so they are racing a little bit. They have to get things done in a a sort of orderly fashion. I I did find that sentence odd. Those flashlights soon to be made public, so not... I'm no flashlight historian. (laughs) (laughs) They, uh... In the 20s, they, uh, or rather... 1931, I think. This is a 3031, I can't remember. So yeah. folks in 31 didn't have a flashlight on top of their icebox, still using lanterns? I mean, what, what, what's the <laughs> history there? I don't know. I'm not sure either. I, is, when were fla- flashlights or torches, as the, yeah. as the UK people Electric call them. torches, right? Yeah, call them. When did they become, anybody know when they became popular use? Is that what he's referring to? That they had flashlights, but they were sort of high tech at the time, and most people didn't have them. Yeah. Is that what he's trying to say? In that, I think so. It wasn't a common. It wasn't made public yet, right? So, guys who were going on an expedition that had the sweet planes and everything they needed could get some flashlights, but you're right. a regular guy, no flashlight. Well, police, police officers in the 1890s in the UK used to have them, um, kind of like mining helmets. I'm pretty sure. It was built into their wigs. When you were drawing them, though, how did you? What did they look like? Uh, well, I had a cheat because essentially I, I took it to be that, uh, for example, the the outfits that they were wearing, uh-huh. they were wearing outfits that would be used in the Antarctic and World War One, uh, World War Two. So what I did was I, I kind of dressed them up that way because I sort of thought they get all this cheap gear because they're trying it out. Yeah. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. So everything they have was kind of forward-looking. Yeah, and I used a flashlight from the, from the period, but even if it was just a little bit further forward, that's fine, because it could be a test piece. Yeah. So, but I, I'm trying to remember. You, you know, they had... I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back. I, I just remembered some of my flashlight history that I you had. You did? Yeah, yeah, because when I was working on Whisper in Darkness, Andrew and I were going through uh, catalogs. 1899. What? They're as early as 1899. Yeah, 
they totally, everybody had flashlights. I don't know what that's talking about yeah. because they were in the Sears catalog. I remember seeing them in a 1930, yeah. uh, Whisper was 1931, Sears catalog. All right, so they're in the catalog. That's when they were made public. Basically, Lovecraft <laughs> was. That makes no sense. He was doing a, a promo. Soon available at Sears. But even yeah. in 1999, the flashlight looked like a flashlight. It was like, you know, a yeah. cylinder object, and it was, you know, handheld. So yeah, we had a, we had no a vintage difference. flashlight when we did Whisper in Darkness. That was from 1931. It was in the Sears catalog. I okay. know. Yeah. Here's the thing that worries me all the time natural disaster strikes, God, you know, God forbid. I don't know how to build a flashlight. Oh, yeah, no. You know, all yeah. the things I rely on day to day, I couldn't. You don't have a no, you don't have to a light use bulb. an axe. How would you, you build oh, a light bulb? I use an axe? If, if, yeah, if civilization went to hell, yeah. you just learn to use an axe. That's it. That's, yeah. it. That's all you need to survive. Right. So, yeah, forget flashlights. You probably won't even have time to go back and get one. And even then, when you recharge the battery, you're relying on things that everybody else has, a, you know, yeah. you can charge it up because someone is working a generator somewhere for you to charge it up. Yeah. Whereas when everything is gone, you just need an axe. I know. Oh, man, I'm in so much trouble. Because <laughs> I don't even know how the to use an axe. Use an axe. <laughs> Which side is it that you put against an invader? Sorry? It's the thin part, right? Chad, you're hopeless. <laughs> That's it, yeah. All right, well, with that, uh, I think we should end this episode. I hope that okay. I'm not going to be pillaged by people now that I've revealed my ignorance of uh, how they use technology. Um, it, it does say at the end of, of chapter, what are we on there, six? We just finished yeah. up. It says, I still wonder what that we deduced so much in the short time at our disposal. Of course, we, we even now only have the barest outline. So, again, he's calling attention to the fact, like, don't, I'm, it's credible that we learned this much. Yeah. Don't don't hate on me so much. Sure. Yeah. I think it's good. Well, we're going to get into Chapter 7 uh, next. Ian, is it... Will you come back next week and... and... Yes. <laughs> Great. <laughs> that was a really firm yes. I know. Yeah, yeah. Now, that you, now that you want to come so bad, I don't know if we want you. Uh, no, no, we do. We do. <laughs> oh, we do. Sure. oh, man. I should have teased it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know, Chad. <laughs> All right. We'll be back then. I want to thank Joe Freya for doing our readings. I want to thank Reaver Clark for the kick-ass music. I want to thank Mike Mann for giving us a great site and, and keeping up with the tech side of things. And I want to thank Brooke Burgess for being an awesome intern and doing our notes. We'll be back next week with more Mountains of Madness. I am Chad Pfeiffer. I'm Chris Lackey. And I'm Ian Colbod. And this has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. hppodcraft.com. <laughs>